I ask them to focus on solving real problems. I mean, we do a lot of scouting into research groups where PhD students, for instance, are tackling incredibly complex technical challenges, but they don't solve any real world problems. And sometimes with certain research groups where that's very prolific. Hello, and welcome to the CVC Unplugged podcast from GCV. I'm Fernando Moncada. We have plenty of knowledge hidden all over the place with potential for transformational change on important problems, but without the ability to commercialize it and spread it out, we won't get to benefit from it. My guest today is Owen Thompson, co-founder and CEO of Cambridge Future Tech, a deep tech venture builder situated, as its name suggests, in one of the most bustling technology and ideas hubs in the world. He talks about Cambridge Future Tech's approach to helping technologist founders achieve commercial partnerships and success, as well as the work that the company does to help corporates and other large institutions build their own ventures, and the importance of providing robust support to these ventures at the very early stages. He also touches on the ever-expanding applications for AI and machine learning and semiconductor technologies, how deep tech startups would do well to focus on solving real-world problems, and much, much more. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe to CVC Unplugged, but above all, enjoy the show. So here we are with Owen Thompson. Owen, how are you, sir? Yes, very well. Thanks, Fernando. Great to be here. Great to have you. And I think this actually marks something of a, of a milestone, this conversation, because as far as I'm aware, I think this is the first time we've had a former fighter pilot on the on the show. So that's that's a good thing, right? Yeah, yeah. It usually helps. Yeah, it's a good talking point to get started. Um, yeah. It's interesting, actually. I've spent a long time trying to explore what, what, the, uh, what the kind of overlap is between that part of, of my career and uh, where I am now. And it's always, it's actually, there are some interesting overlaps that I hadn't considered originally which I can go into a little bit later on. Yeah, I mean, still, I suppose, going after targets, right? <laughs> In a way, yeah. <laughs> to put it crudely. Sure. Yeah. Do you ever miss it? Do you, do you still do you still kind of, do, do you still fly at all? Or Oh, yeah, it's a great question. I do a bit of flying still. I have a friend who's got a share in a jet provost down at an airfield near us and a, a couple of old 19, uh, 1980s jet trainers, which I like to go down and, and um, have a bit of a go in now and then. And I take my parents up and my... Uh, and my wife up private flying now and then, but it's a pretty expensive hobby, so it's few and far. I can imagine, yeah, yeah, I can imagine, especially nowadays with the fuel, right? It's it's a bit, uh, yeah. Well, anyway, I, I don't, I don't have the, I barely have the stomach for roller coasters, let alone, let alone, you know, training flights. So, <laughs> but yeah, like like you mentioned, you know, you you were you you often think about the parallels between that and and the work you do at CFT, but maybe first, you know, fill in the blanks for us a bit. How did you go from, you know, flying in the RAF to 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 where you are now? Yeah. Okay. So, well, I did 13 years in the Air Force. I flew Eurofighter Typhoons and I eventually specialised in electronic warfare. So on my final squadron, I was based up in the north of Scotland, very operational. And I think that the line I tend to stick with is that working on electronic warfare is really the operational application of deep tech. So what you get to see is a lot of cryptography, a lot of secure communications, electronic suppression, radar jamming and radar manipulation and those kinds of things used in in a natural operational sense so you get a very good feel for the adoption of new technologies and where kind of nascent bits of tech are going to be useful or not on the front line 
for me, that read across very nicely into transferring over to BAE Systems, our big aerospace prime in the UK. And that allowed me to work through a series of roles culminating in running their advanced technology solutions area, which has a couple of R&D sites to it, working on a variety of things from uh, microwave materials, our UK sovereign low observability, uh, stealth, if you like, capability, all the way through to printed electronics and MEMS, and a very different type of leadership role for me moving from being out on the aircrew side through to being in engineering, manufacturing and R&D. So a really broad set of experiences for me. But I think what was what was really interesting and the tie is really that deep tech side is that passion for understanding technologies and looking at applying them in a useful sense. We had a lot of stuff in BA Systems, which is all very customer funded or customer oriented, where we're trying to provide solutions that are effective for particular applications within the aerospace or the maritime sector and so on. And I think for me, the read across into what I'm doing now in Cambridge Future Tech was that having been through that experience and understood the customer side of what we were looking to do with nascent technologies, it finally kind of brought the the points together for how you can take some foundational technologies and actually get them out into the real world. So if you have a passion for tech and you see lots of really interesting things going on in the background and in the news, but you really want to understand how those are going to be applied in a real sense and how they can come into fruition in a tangible way, then the answer has really got to be that that translation point between pre-incorporation or pre-idea and what would be traditionally known in a, in a venture sense as a pre-seed round. That's very difficult to do in a corporate environment, not least because um, you need board engagement for those types of very like nascent sets of R&D. Most of what you do is customer funded. And also you need the corporate knowledge to be able to do to do spin outs because a lot of the deep tech or the foundational technologies will have been born in an academic environment, probably with decades of research behind them. So um, that was what kind of led us on to setting up Cambridge Future Tech. Mm-hmm. And, you know, deep tech is one of those things, I think, that, that can sometimes mean many things to many people, right? So, so how, how, how would you define it, broadly speaking? <laughs> <laughs> this is also such a good question, because even amongst the deep tech VC community, there's a, there's a really good debate about whether to even capitalize the D and the T on deep tech, right, let yeah, alone yeah, the meaning yeah. of the words. For us, it, it, internally, it has to be something that we're excited by. But really, you're looking at foundational changes in technology. We're not looking to reapply a different type of algorithm to a slightly, you know, marginally different environment for financial gain. It's more to do with emerging technologies, foundationally new technologies or foundationally new systems of systems and applications and ways of doing things. So we're looking for disruptive change. We're looking for a whole different step up in um, the application of technology. And often people will associate that straight away with hard tech. Right. And, and, and surely enough, there is a good overlap between enhanced com- computational facilities and abilities and the hard tech side of things. Although, for instance, when we're talking to financial institutions, it's also very true that obviously a lot of the emerging technologies in the AI space are going to be very relevant to them on the software side. There's a massive overlap there. So we work across both hardware and software and the intersection. And I think that deep tech applies through to all of those. But what's important is that the technology is foundationally new or is creating a disruptive change within an, an industry or an ecosystem. Mm, right. So, so what, 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 talk me through your process a bit in, in terms of, so firstly, I suppose, maybe starting with, with how you find the, your founders, right? How, how you find your, your, your entrepreneurs or your technologists that want to commercialize the, the, the technology. Yeah. Do they apply for it? Or? Um. So we, our, our thesis is slightly different to a traditional venture studio or venture builder in that we don't start with the bringing together of talent. 
and then ideating around problem spaces and coming up with solutions, which is a little bit, sounds like the wrong way of doing it because you're supposed to be very requirements driven and everybody understands that very well. What we actually look to do is, our theory is that deep tech, having had to start with decades of research to get to the point at which it can be brought out from an academic environment, needs to start in the lab. Whether that's a corporate research lab or an academic research lab, chances are that you can't ideate a new piece of semiconductor technology on the spot, for instance, or a new breakthrough in quantum or a new robotics revolution. You can't come up with that on the spot or even over a period of weeks and months necessarily, unless you've got the right expertise. So our thesis was that we would start start in the lab. So when it comes to people, because we're generally spending a lot of time in the research labs across a variety of institutions, both academic and corporate, we tend to find the technical co-founders first. And we will tend to find them in the research environment and we will support them and their IP and whatever shape that comes into to transfer themselves and their knowledge out into a kind of an arm's length accelerated growth unit, which is, which is the startup. From there, they may have a good idea of who they would like in as co-founders or perhaps we'll go out to our network. We do have both passive and active mechanisms of sourcing the kind of commercial talent to go along with that technical talent. And also for breaking extra technical talent out of the research group to join the people who um, who are coming to found the startups. And it's a very gradual process for us. We're very resource intensive. We bridge the gap on the commercial side for quite an extended period of time. And over the course of six months to a year, we will look to have socialized the project with our network, understood where the expertise lies and sourced someone, either a serial founder or someone with a, an absolutely stellar commercial background in that space to come and lead those projects as a CEO and as a, as a whatever else is needed, COO or CCO in that, in that regard, as well as the advisory networks, which are very important. So that's probably a very vague answer to you, but it's quite a drawn out process for us. It's very important that we get the, the founder matching right. We have time to socialize them with each other and it's not really done in a, in a traditional sense. I, I do think that the talent matching mechanisms in venture building are actually very effective and gathering groups of talent together is is a great way to ideate around a problem space and come up with a fantastic startup. But I think that what you're likely to do is to birth B2B SaaS companies, which just isn't what we're trying to build. So there's a great foundation of companies doing that. There are some fantastic companies out there doing it right now, which are very extremely profitable. It's just not quite what our thesis was in trying to tackle the problem, the kind of commercialization gap for deep tech specifically. Right. So to, to the extent that there is some kind of typical profile of, of, of your founders, they, they tend to be very, very technically focused, right? Probably from an academic background. And, and do they already have their sights set on commercializing their research? Or is that something that they kind of get some, not encouraged, but uh, uh, no, yeah, encourage is the right word actually to do. Yeah, I, um, no, generally they do. We're, we're looking for people with the right mindset who have an inclination to work outside of academia. There tend to be some interesting exit points within within the profile of a research group. So you've got PhD students who've been working on something for a while. They've realized that what they're doing is significant and might have commercial potential, and they'd like to spin it out and have some impact. There's also people towards the top end of the research group that have been senior postdocs for a while. They don't desire or see a future in academia, and they're looking to come out and have more impact. And they've, been, they've got a little bit more experience, and they're slightly more senior, and those people tend to make quite good launch CTOs. And then we don't see very often the actual professors themselves, people at that, that kind of level, leaving their academic positions to go and do the startups. It's not unheard of, but it's less, less frequent. And instead, those individuals can be a great tie back into the research group, and getting them vested into the company and getting their engagement can be a source of continued IP pipeline from that research group. 
and a really good connection to kind of vet what's going on on, on the technical side as the company progresses. Right, right. So, so at the risk of being a bit reductive, so you know, if you take like the stereotypical, you know, startup founder duo, you where you have, you know, the one technical person and the business person, you guys kind of step into that business role, right? Or, or, or at least help them find the person who steps into that business. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, and our team have a variety of skill sets. We've got commercial backgrounds, financial backgrounds. We've got deep levels of market research expertise, which I think is really important at this stage. So one one differentiator, which I think is quite important, it's very difficult for the investment community to move back prior to pre-seed in terms of the timeline of commercialization. And that's because everything prior to pre-seed, essentially the, the team's not in place, the, the, the view of a product timeline is not wrapped up. Maybe even at pre-seed it isn't, but it's certainly more vague before that. And it's really difficult to measure any kind of KPI in that, in that space between pre-incorporation and pre-seed. So we actually set our company up as a private company and not as a, a limited partnership fund so that we weren't bound by the time limits of investors that needed us to be on a, a quick four or five year cycle. And that's very important because that governance structure is what allows us to come in at the extremely early stage to come in and offer this kind of support down at day zero because our returns will be slightly more drawn out. We've got that added one or two year period on at the beginning where the company needs to go through the spin out process and the recruitment needs to happen. And so at that early stage, we do have to step in quite substantially on the business side of the role. And that's everything from helping with negotiation with the spin out itself to getting all the governance in place. We can't possibly expect someone who's spent a career in academia to immediately be completely au fait with all the legal documentation and everything that's required or to have the liquidity to pay for it all immediately during the early part of that spin out process. So we will step in and cover all of those roles. And my point in coming in so very early on when there aren't measurable metrics is that the market research side of what we do has to be incredibly, it has to have an incredible amount of depth because at that stage when all we're looking at is a very nascent technology or some very early IP, we really need to understand the potential for market impact before we decide to do the spin out. So part of when we're coming in very early on and broaching the commercial side, part of our responsibility is to come and do massive levels of market research and validation to prove that should this mature into a into a product line later on, there is a proper commercial potential with a, an appropriate market sizing there to justify doing the work. Yeah, that, that's the next thing I was going to ask. Is that validation something that at that initial point where you first link up, is that something that they've already done a bit of or, or is that something that you guys do? You completely take that on. Yeah, they, they, they kind of looked into it. And, and certainly the tech transfer offices tied to the universities will have helped them with that activity. It's often part of their remit to help look into market sizing and help understand the potential of those projects, not least because uh, some of them have their own investment units and they might be interested in backing their own founders out of those universities. Where we look at things, sometimes we spin projects out of corporate research labs and they will certainly have had a look at the potential market environment having, having been more commercially minded in the first place. However, that, that will never stop us from doing our own level of what is essentially at that stage diligence and diving deeper into that market. And sometimes that doesn't mean discrediting or kind of trying to squeeze the potential market opportunity of that tech. Actually, what we quite often see is a missed opportunity. So we'll speak to someone and say, look, I'm really interested in commercializing my bit of IP, but I'm worried there's not really much of a market for it. And then we'll look into it and they're just, they're just not positioned it properly or there's some enormous adjacent markets they've not considered. And sometimes that means that we get sort of unusual access into a, a bit of IP that's, um, not been floated in front of investors yet because the founder themselves didn't realize the potential of what they were doing. You mentioned that 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 you know you you've spun some things out of corporate research labs. Do you, do you look at those as much as you do university research labs? 
we've only really started doing that in the last year and it's becoming quite a, quite a large part of what we do whereas last year we did majority academic spin outs this year we're split into thirds so we're doing a third of academic spin outs a third of corporate spin outs and a third are serial founders and the the time to ramp up these different types of projects and the types of support they need are very different and so we don't have a cookie cutter approach we're not running an accelerator with a set course of lectures we're we're very very bespoke to every single project we do so we're comparatively low volume compared to an accelerator on our own balance sheet we'll build eight companies a year is our target and then we'll do more outside of that with commercial partners so we actually do spin outs on behalf of our corporate partners where they will end up with a small equity stake in those companies so they have some kind of ownership into a whatever their strategic intent is a supplier market a decarbonization asset a customer customer subset whatever it is that they're strategically trying to achieve by sourcing an arm's length accelerated growth unit based on IP. Right. And 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 this is something presumably they have either, you know, not not the budget or the bandwidth to kind of try to spin out themselves. Is that the right? Yeah. And that's and that's where it comes full circle, right? Because I've seen that myself in the buy-in from the board perhaps to do a project of this size. If it's below on day one, it's below tens of millions of of dollars. Maybe it's not going to get board buy-in or Perhaps the R&D division is very focused on something that they're working on internally, a reapplication of an existing technology into a new customer subset. It's very difficult to do arm's length accelerated growth from the corporate environment, I think. It's a combination of, of buy-in from stakeholders and also it's, um, it, it has resource requirements and it's complex. And if you start trying to do that stuff internally, I know certainly in BA systems, we would have had a concern about losing our engineering talent and how we were going to tackle those sorts of thorny issues when when it's so hard to come by and when we're ferociously recruiting. We don't want to be spinning people out into other organizations. So there are a lot of nuances in there about how we do corporate spin-outs. And the delineation is of the eight companies per year that we build ourselves at, at our own cost, some of those will be spun out from the corporate research groups as a source of IP, and they will kind of join us in in some ownership of that project. The different thing that we do with the corporate venture building, where we do it as a service, is that we'll act as an intermediary for those corporates to go and access Scout and then spin out and build companies on behalf of those corporates to achieve their goals. And do those ever have any kind of contractual requirements to to perhaps not set up commercial partnerships with potential competitors, et cetera? That's a good question. I mean, that's that's always a point on the early investment rounds, isn't it? When we're looking at corporate VC as to whether it's the right thing to bring in a certain corporate, whether it will restrict market access, my experience so far has been that the corporates are actually very aware of that. They're not taking huge equity stakes in these companies, and they're certainly not putting prohibitive terms on them in terms of market access and reach. So they also see a revenue return opportunity in these companies. Maybe that's part of their strategy around building building out certain technologies. They certainly, as far as I've seen so far, they don't seem to restrict the ability of the startups to operate across the market in any way which is quite heartening because I think anecdotally, the view is always that if you get the wrong CVC in early on, it might restrict your market access or, or kind of like tie you to a certain exit route. But certainly that's not been the case with the corporate venture building. No, yeah, that, that, is, that is heartening because that, that, that's one of the more common kind of hesitations that, that founders have with potentially going into business with CVCs that they'll put these kind of owner's terms in that they'd rather do with that. So, so yeah, it's definitely encouraging if you're building ventures for them that they don't put those in. How long typically is your kind of involvement with the with the ventures that you build? Is it, or do you have your eye on the long term? Yeah, it's a good question. Probably too long. 
we're co-founders in these companies. So when we first start them up, our team are deeply emotionally engaged in the spin out. We're working on it 24 seven throughout the week. Multiple members of the team are, are involved at any one time. So we're extremely resource intensive for probably the first year. We're literally running the companies. I mean, especially when we're doing it with an academic spin out, perhaps that individual or that bit of IP won't actually be spun out of the university for over six months or, or much longer. That's because the individuals might be contractually engaged into the research groups. The spin out process can take a while. It's quite complex. So for that entire period, we kind of are the company. We're running the companies ourselves at those stages with engagement from the technical founders. Once the companies are funded at a pre-seed round, which tends to happen after around 12 months, sometimes a bit sooner, then their company will gain more independence. They'll obviously be recruiting their own team. By that stage, we will have already brought in a full founding team as well. They'll move into their own office. They'll, they'll be off. And it's, that's kind of a very exciting time. However, there's a little blip there where our engagement actually ramps up. Because what we find in the first couple of months after funding is that they need a lot of support with things like recruitment, setting up systems and processes to be able to do people management. Perhaps there's some coaching and mentoring. And we'll tie in people from our wider network to support with that as well. We have a vast network of mentors and business experts and technical experts that can lean in and support on those areas. And then we will kind of take a step back. We will join the companies for maybe a day a week at that stage and, and just lean in and, and help and structure things. And it's really for them to drive our engagement from that point onwards. The resource is there for them to access. The expertise within the team is there for them to access. And what we see is that we will be able to have more of an acute impact where there are really important customer introductions to be had or where they're working through a particular thorny challenge and we can set up a workshop for a day and bring in expertise and work through those sorts of things. And then our engagement ramps up again towards the next funding round. We will rebuild the data and we'll re-go over a lot of the market research, revalidate some of the revenue modeling and those sorts of things and help support them into that next round along with investor introductions and so on. And then do you follow on to the next round as well? I mean, I'm guessing you retain some kind of equity stake, right? Do you, do you then bolt on afterwards? Yeah, we, we're actually in the process of kind of setting up a structure for a growth fund, which will come in in the next kind of 12 to 18 months. At the moment, we don't, but in the future, we will. And is that growth fund, is that going to be looking at like Series A, B, that, that kind of range? Or? I think Series A. Series A. Yeah, we're still, still building out the thesis, still working with partners on that one, but it needs to be able to support our ongoing engagement at that stage. Right, right. That makes sense. And, and so, so you mentioned the main challenges are, obviously, they're, 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 they're the commercialization expertise, right? Because the, the technical know-how will be largely there. The IP will be there. What, what other kind of common pain points do, do the founders tend to have when, when they come to you? Yeah, okay. So when it comes to, I guess the question is about commercializing deep tech. The, the problems that you have fundamentally in deep tech are long development cycles. So this, this tech involves complex R&D. It's often at very low technology readiness levels. So there's an extended development timeline. What we, we build a lot of strategies around managing funding for those long cycles. And we build a lot of strategies around early proof of concept work so that commercial traction, while it not, might not be coming in the form of big bucks showering down upon the companies in the early days, there's at least commercial traction and partnerships to be shown whereby the companies are engaging with the right sort of commercial environment and they're showing that there is going to be commercial interest in the ultimate product. There are quite a few regulatory hurdles as well. We're often working with technologies that are so new that they will hopefully go on to help form part of the regulatory environment. Certainly, we're building one out at the moment in uh, runtime assurance for autonomous systems. We know this is a specific requirement that is tied into some of the 
regulatory cycles that will feed into the aviation environment for things like delivery drones. And that company hopes to be a part of that. We have to very delicately balance the line between them not being reliant upon regulatory changes, but also the fact that if they can be a part of that discussion, then there's, there's an enormous upside for them. And, and which, com- which company is that? Uh, that's a company called Safe Systems. We actually only incorporated it a couple of weeks ago. I was going to say because I have I took a look through your portfolio, some really cool stuff there, but I hadn't uh, I hadn't picked up on the company that did that. So you guys have uh, NeuroXR, and tell me if I'm pronouncing any of these wrong because <laughs> NeuroXR uh, Auto Picker, which I think is really cool. I think that's in, like an agricultural kind of robotics picking provider. Mimicrete, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, self healing concrete already won me over. That's really cool. Get Life Biotech and Mignon. And uh, Cam AI. Although Mignon, do you guys pronounce that in French or Mignon? Uh, Mignon. Yeah, we have <laughs> yeah, everything from that one. I was in the US yeah. last week, and we were getting a lot of Mignon yeah. coming through. Uh, so I'm not sure the best, uh, best ever company name, but very exciting company nevertheless. Yeah, those those are kind of the six of the ones that we built last year. We've got a load more in the pipeline this year. And one of the one of the interesting things is the companies we're building. You won't find them on PitchBook. They're not necessarily not a lot of public data on them until we launch and that's intentional because we want there to be or we're taking things that are you know extremely high risk and and our job is to mitigate them and coming from my background as a fighter pilot you need the element of surprise right <laughs> yeah. yeah well no i was going to say you might think that there is a sort of seemingly unbounded appetite for risk but actually my role is about calculating and mitigating risk and doing that in real time and so our role as a company is to take very extremely early stage propositions and to risk mitigate them through a through a 12 month process to the point where once we present them out to our kind of co-investment partners in the, in the investment environment these are de-risked we we try to build a data room that's as thorough as a series a data room you know and we don't want to reveal that until it's ready till we finish the modeling and we've backed everything up with empirical data points and you know, our revenue models aren't built on on thin air. There's actually customer conversations and comparative models and things that we've fed into that. So yeah, we're built we're building out a pipeline of opportunities. We're self-curating deep tech deal flow that's not publicly available until it's presented. And so companies like Safe Systems, yeah, there's not much out there on them at the moment. They're not marketing themselves, but they are starting to have early conversations and it'll only be a matter of weeks until we go public with that one. And generally speaking, you know, from your experience since you guys started, you know, CFT. What have you found have been your, from your side, your biggest challenges, like, and your biggest kind of learnings? This is also a very good question. So, a few years ago, when we created the company, we were we were that cliche of a startup helping startups start up. And what we have is a, a bunch of absolute experts in executing the build phase of a startup. We've got a very comprehensive group of people with expertise in all the areas that are required for a company to actually get to revenue with a product. What we found was that when sourcing the technologies that we wanted to work with, and I've mentioned already, we we took an immediate, very deep focus on diligencing the market opportunities. But what we've learned over time is that we actually needed to be more thorough in diligencing some of the other aspects of what we do as well. So it's sometimes taken as an assumption that if the technology comes from a particular research group, it's good to go. But we've had to, to kind of build out our, our tech diligence. That's not necessarily because the technologies are, or the bits of IP aren't, aren't legitimate, but actually sometimes they're being looked at in other locations. Sometimes the protections aren't as sound as they should be. And so one of the one of the areas of focus that we worked on in the early years was kind of beefing up our diligence process to make sure that 
if we're going to find a skeleton in the closet or if we need to beef up an IP strategy, that we discover that very early on. And then we can we can work to satisfy that. And so our due diligence process went from a period that was kind of pre-engagement to actually we understand now that our, our entire build process is due diligence. And we f- feed in, there are five different review gates that we'll check off as we go through the whole process. Yeah. And we're very thorough with that. And we document everything very closely. And we make sure that we are constantly reviewing our position in these in these building situations to make sure that we haven't missed anything and that the teams are getting all the absolute benefit that they should be able to. And then I think the other area of focus for us has been starting to work with corporates. I think we probably came onto that realization a little bit later than we should have done. Actually, the synergies and the benefits of working with corporates are incredible. We immediately, these startups then immediately have access to expertise and market insights, and the corporates are gaining access to bits of intellectual property and technology that they just wouldn't usually see. And even the PR benefits of that are are actually incredible. So we've got these really beautiful synergies now with the corporates that we work with that we um, we could have been doing much earlier on, and we were just busy building for our own portfolio. But now we're setting up increasingly more corporate partnerships and we're seeing great benefits of doing that like well, what are what, what are some of those benefits you mentioned you know marketing is good obviously access to, to information how, how has that manifested itself for, for some of your startups yeah i mean there, there are some great ways that corporates can help advance this space in deep tech obviously investment's the most obvious one of those and when you work with a corporate you can bring investment to the table immediately on a larger scale potentially but also it's to do on the less obvious side the partnerships and the collaborations established with those corporations provide the startups access to distribution channels, resources, markets. And so, again, quite hearteningly, we find that when we work with the corporates, they're very keen to lean in and set up those synergies and show off what they're doing with the startups, even through to mentorship and expertise. And obviously, the technology transfer side starts to feed down onto the startups as well, where maybe the corporate's got something that could benefit the startup beyond what they've already got. So, um, there are, there are a whole range of areas for overlap with corporates. And it's a really, really, for us, it's quite an emerging space and it's incredibly impactful. You mentioned, you briefly touched on earlier that, that you guys also do a kind of venture building as a service kind of function, right? Like almost like a consultancy practice. But how does that process differ from the one that you guys do internally when you're helping build a venture, say for an external partner or, or, or you know, for, for a client, for lack of a better term? So the business model on our side is different because when we build for ourselves, we are taking a, a co-founding equity stake, a small co-founding equity stake in the in the companies that we build, and that's it. We're not charging anyone any fees on any side of the table, and it keeps us very neutral between maybe like the university tech transfer ecosystem and the investment ecosystem, where legitimately our only interests are those of the startups. And if, if the startups don't see success, we don't see success. When we work with the corporates, we can't really double down on equity stakes. We're, we're founders. We're aware that like everybody can't have loads of equity stakes in the company. So often there'll be a shared equity stake or the corporate will take the whole equity stake and we'll work on a consultancy basis for cash only. However, the actual build out process is the same. We literally drawn a box around our process, everything from the kind of like very extensive scouting we do where we'll talk to 20 or 30 academic and corporate institutions on a a months long scouting exercise to drill down into a specific bit of tech that we're after or a specific solution space that we're after and then the the build out process from there is 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 exactly the same all the way through to getting the companies funded at pre-seed so there's really not a lot of difference in there except for we also benefit from the synergies of the corporate 
maybe when we're looking for you mentioned earlier like sourcing a ceo well if we're building out a company in a certain industry who's better network to exploit than that of the corporate which dominates that that ecosystem they will know people in that industry they can introduce to the startup we can socialize maybe there's not always a perfect fit but certainly there's a much larger pool of talent for us to immediately access and you, you you also touched on earlier about the kind of the, the the big challenges involved in commercializing deep tech. First, where where exactly are the biggest bottlenecks there, and and how can we kind of go about easing them a bit more? What's needed? It's quite an interesting one. I guess there are there, you know it's a hot topic in the UK at the moment about collaboration with research institutions. I think the government is working towards more collaborative environments, but deep tech and. The European deep tech ecosystem is very interesting for this. If you look at conferences like Hello Tomorrow, they are huge on emphasizing the requirement for collaboration between research institutions, between corporates, venture builders, shared resources, expertise. Commercializing something in deep tech is very hard. It's, it's a much more drawn out process than, than perhaps doing a pure, pure B2B software company in the kind of old school sense. So collaboration is, is a bottleneck that needs easing and the more forums for that, the better. That that's not a competitive space. There needs to be more collaboration wherever possible, more communities being built. Funding mechanisms are obviously complex. I think investing in deep tech is, is difficult. We're always interested in alternative funding mechanisms. We utilize a lot of government grants and non-dilutive investment for the startups we work with, corporate partnerships, as we've mentioned, and obviously venture capital. I think the other bottleneck is in the startups themselves. They need to, I mean, this is true of any startup but they need to adopt adaptive strategies. They need to understand that pivoting when necessary to address market challenges or emerging opportunities is, is a requirement. And we see that quite a lot with deep tech startups where particularly someone who's been researching a certain subject area on the technical side for a number of years might have a very firmly set view of, of the particular application of their technology. They might not have seen that there are just much even bigger opportunities or more exciting areas for impact. And those founders' ability to adapt to those situations and grow and learn with the company is quite an interesting topic. One of the one of the huge areas that we focus on and looking for founders is coachability. Right. Yeah. That, that's always yeah. That, that, that's always something that even on the uh, on the VC side, you know, they say you know, does the founder think that they know everything there is to know, or are they you know collaborative and, and coachable? I suppose yeah, that's very important. And in in terms of kind of finding the market opportunity, as you were just touching on, do you, how, how much to what extent do you have to be mindful when you're kind of selecting founders to not set up a potential kind of conflict of interest in terms of their focus areas? Is that, is that something that you have to watch out for? Yes and no. I mean, it's very clear within the academic tech transfer ecosystem as to how those relationships work. I think this is something tech transfer offices are very good at in delineating between where a founder can apply their expertise for the startup and where the overlap would be with pre-existing intellectual property, what is or isn't being transferred, what does or doesn't count as know-how. So I suppose in those sorts of areas of overlap, that's very clear. And anything beyond that in terms of competition is all wrapped up in in the usual kind of corporate governance you would expect within director service contracts and employment contracts and those sorts of boring things. <laughs> now, no, I mean, what about in terms of the conflict of interest between the, between the startups? Oh, uh, I, see, I see what you're saying. Most, mostly we see collaboration opportunities between between the various startups in our portfolios. I don't think we suffer from that competitive question very much, probably because we're not huge high volume. We're not doing three cohorts of 20 every year. 
And I guess in the first place where we're researching the potential for a huge market opportunity, we'll, we'll immediately be aware if there's some overlap with something we're already doing. But generally, these things are quite synergistic. We find even we're working on a semiconductor company at the moment, which has applications in about three of the other startups that we're working on. So they're kind of eyeing each other up as uh, partners and customers. It's quite interesting. And, and as an, an ho- a whole emerging field, there's a lot of overlap in the different areas of deep tech and certainly in the impact areas that they're trying to get into. So we don't see too much um, competitive issues within our portfolio. But like I say, I think that's because we're not enormous volume. We're not pumping out hundreds of companies. We're trying to just build eight per year and consistent high quality growth within those companies. And do you ever see yourselves looking outside the uh, UK or outside of Europe, maybe perhaps over to the US? Yeah, actually, yeah, we've we've uh, started looking at the first couple of projects in Europe and in the US. I think it's in the early days for us, it wasn't part of our growth strategy. There's plenty of IP in the UK ecosystem. Some of the best universities of the world just positioned in this small area. So geographical expansion wasn't appropriate for us until we'd nailed down our processes and made sure that we were effective within our model. Now, through our own investor base and certainly through the corporate partnerships we're working with, there is a lot of impetus to start to expand into different ecosystems. The closest touch point we have with the US is really as a marketplace. So again, coming back to the semiconductor example, it might make sense, for instance, that we would bring that company out to San Francisco to go and raise raise cash in that ecosystem where there's more liquidity for that type of approach, maybe in partnership with some UK and European investors. But those are the immediate areas where we start to look at working in Europe and overseas. And then on the spin-out ecosystem, actually driven by some of our corporate relationships, we're starting to see opportunities to work, certainly with US universities, some of the more prominent ones on spinning out some of those companies where our, our model and our mechanism would be very supportive, even in those environments where you'd assume all that kind of stuff was, we, we take the assumption over here that it's all under apps, it's all completely covered, but it's actually the institutions suffer the same challenges that anyone trying to commercialize deep tech does. And our mechanism offers the same benefits in those environments as it does in the UK. And how would you characterize the kind of difference between the two, um, for lack of a better word, I suppose, deep tech ecosystems between the the, 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 the US and, and Europe, for example? It's funny, I ask because I think over summer, one of our guests on the show was actually someone else from the Cambridge Deep Tech ecosystem, Miles Kirby, and and who you're probably familiar with. And he uh, mentioned that, and I'm paraphrasing here, but that Europe has all the tools to kind of close that gap, but just needs to kind of do it. Would you agree with that? How, how, how do you see that? Miles is absolutely right. All the tools, you know, spot on. All the tools and the resources are available across Europe to be able to build a thriving ecosystem. I just got back from the US 48 hours ago and and the perspective from over there is that there's a different mindset and there, there's a different type of vision in the founders and there are different things going on. And maybe that's partially true. There's some level of maturity in the European ecosystem that's a little bit behind, but that's not because of a lack of expertise and resources. It's just as an ecosystem, it's slightly behind in terms of its growth. I think it's a hot hot space to keep an eye on over the next decade and the next five years. And I think you'll see some increasing numbers of globally impactful deep tech companies spinning out of Europe in a way that you have never seen before. Globalization and obviously the emergence of different sorts of commercialization activities in those different ecosystems will perhaps start to level the playing field slightly. But the sheer power and the sheer volume of activity going on, certainly in the US West Coast, in places like Boston and New York, is um, you know, it's not going to go away. That's a massive, massive 
positive of the ecosystem. And I think they should be seen as collaboration opportunities instead of vying with each other. Hmm. And speaking of hot areas to keep an eye on, where, where would you say the biggest ones of those are in the context of deep tech? Yeah, it's a bit of a cliche, but with an aerospace background, I'm going to highlight <laughs> base exploration and technology. I think there's a growing interest in that area, satellite technology. Some of the really exciting VCs are focused on things like asteroid mining, which I think is really cool. But realistically, in the short term, as, as I've heard on some of your previous podcasts, uh, AI and machine learning is seeing brand new applications and continued growth. Some of the announcements, even in the last week, have been eye-watering. But from a deep tech perspective, trying to understand where the next innovations in AI and machine learning are going to come from, it's more down to, okay, so there are companies dealing with certain algorithmic challenges and certain types of innovations coming out. Where are the next challenges going to be when we're looking at memory or where we're looking at different types of semiconductor technologies? Are those the, the next limiting factors? Where are those innovations going to emerge from? Trying to explore that, that fundamental step forward space. The temptation is to go and build 20 companies with uh, GPT API plugins. And that's not what we're trying to achieve. The other areas I think are quite hot are biotechnology. I'm really interested in the various types of biotech that are coming out. We've got that one company you mentioned, GitLife Biotech, doing DNA barcoding, which is a fascinating area. Quantum computing is obviously an interesting topic, where there's the potential to revolutionize industries like cryptography, materials science, logistics, and then clean energy and sustainability. Innovations in renewable energy, carbon capture, and sustainable agriculture, really high up on our agenda at the moment. And what does success look like for your startups? Good question. I mean, we're looking for startups that are globally impactful. We love the idea that particularly some of the areas where we do scouting exercises and then we help to leverage technologies out of the academic environment, we are building companies that wouldn't otherwise exist. They're not coming in and, and kind of fighting for a stake in in the growth of a company that's on their way. We're creating companies from scratch and we love that. So it'd be really exciting for us to be able to say, you know, that massive global impact of that huge sustainability goal that was covered off by that really amazing startup was one that we built back in the early days. But ultimately, our, our investors and the company's investors are looking for financial returns. So they will need to see exits within sensible timeframes. Mm -hmm. And what, 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 uh, what does sensible mean here? Within, I'm guessing within 10 years at some point or a bit after that? Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so like, the normal, I guess, we, we have very patient investors, but they're not. Um, <laughs> not they don't super, not, not decades. So yeah, it's certainly, I think five to seven years is a sensible time frame for companies that we build from scratch. And we will see a sensible distribution as a VC would with their portfolios as to some companies that exit much sooner, whether that's through an acquisition of an emerging technology or some other kind of rapid exit and we'll see ones that take slightly longer to mature and that is always a it's a debate we're having with one of the live startups at the moment as to what commercial approach are they taking how much of their tech stack are they trying to build out how long term a play is it and that's all factored around what kind of exit they're looking for it is a conversation but certainly i think seven years is the limit for what we should be looking for in terms of a turnaround exit yeah, you mentioned investors just now, and I meant to ask earlier, actually, how, how are you guys capitalized? Yeah, that comes back to our governance point, which is that setting up as a private limited company allows us to take equity onto balance sheets. So we're funded through our balance sheet activities initially, and that gave us some level of runway to go out and build the first between 12 and 20 companies. And then after that, what we see is this kind of self-sustaining mechanism where because of the corporate activity we do, our business model is sustainable without needing to go out and raise a huge fund every year and live off the fees. 
So we have our own sustainable business model that underwrites the venture activity, venture building activity that we do. In addition to that, as we come into the growth fund territory, that will add some more liquidity into the system as well. And then in the long term, ours is a very patient game. Then we will start to see returns come back through the portfolio in the latter years. Yeah, I mean, deep tech is, is if, if nothing else, it's patient. <laughs> it needs to be, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I suppose maybe to, to, to cap things off there, Owen, you know, what advice would you give startups that are operating in the area of deep tech you know, to navigate the current market? I'd ask them to focus on solving real problems. I mean, we do a lot of scouting into research groups where PhD students, for instance, are tackling incredibly complex technical challenges but they don't solve any real world problems. And sometimes with certain research groups where that's very prolific, we'll come in and offer a touch point right at the start of each year where we can come in and just give people a very quick brief that says, hey, when you're, when you're kind of choosing your focus areas, if you look at something that has a real world problem and is technically challenging, then there's a real potential for you to go on and address and prioritize solving those issues at the end of your PhD. Outside of that, I'd say build a strong team. The importance of assembling a diverse team with complementary skills and expertise can't be underrated. My team would would shout at me if I didn't raise the fact that they should have a very customer-centric approach. It's very cliched for startups, but it's the truth. And then finally, I'd say to sort of to seek mentorship. We're often pairing our founders with mentors or coaches and advisors. You can't get enough external input into what you're doing. Your company will be built by your advisors and your strategy will be shaped by those around you take on advice constructively and, and yearn for it. Look for as much feedback as you can within your advisory ecosystems and within any any kind of personal mentors that you can set up. And those would be the places where you can have those real honest conversations and get that very candid feedback on what you're doing to allow you to to move forward and be adaptable with confidence in your proposition. Great. Well, I think that that is as good a place as any there, Owen, to, to, to wrap things up. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And I look forward to keeping up with things you guys do going forward. Thanks, Fernando. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Take care. That's it for most of the week, folks. Be sure to like and subscribe to never miss out on future guests anywhere you get your podcasts. I have been Fernando Moncada. Our sound engineer is Mark Chatterley from Inner Production. Go check out his work today at innerproduction.com. We'll be back again next week as ever. Until then, have a good one. <laughs>